My message today is entitled, Going Back to the Roots. As we approach Independence Day, we have to view our current state of affairs as a country in the same lens as the foundation in which we were founded. And without a doubt, we can see how far we have strayed from our founding principles. Even though our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles and values, we seem to be holding on with our fingertips to persevere and to retain many of those same aspects of our original foundation. Both sides of the aisle today are talking about changing the Constitution, adding amendments, breaking away from laws and ordinances that kept us a solid republic since we broke away from the British crown. But the more important topic, especially for us here today, that needs to be addressed is within the church. The destruction of the gospel is being perpetuated by people who claim to be on God's side but have watered down its teachings, have compromised its moral standing, and have literally depleted the Holy Spirit power from the church today as we drift farther from our roots and our foundation. Thus, today's message is given to take us back to our roots as a Christian church and align us with what is actually taught in the Bible. We turn to our fathers of the faith. Martin Luther, in the 1500s, said, For Satan, the god of all dissension, stirs up daily new sects, S-E-C-T-S. And last of all, I should never have foreseen or once suspected he has raised up a sect of such that teach that men should not be terrified or afraid of the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ. You see, by divine grace, Jesus saves us through his sacrificial death on the cross. But there's a movement in the church that takes this out of proportion by leaning exclusively on grace and ignoring the foundation stones of the faith. Yes, by God's grace he saved us, but he had to sacrifice his life to do so. We can't just keep on living and saying God's grace saves us so I can live however I want. We must remember the sacrifices that got us here. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment. These are the foundations of our faith. The first foundational principle mentioned is repentance from dead works. Without a foundation, a building has no stability, no security, and no staying power. At the first sign of pressure, it crumbles. With even the most basic of studies, it's easy to see the foundational teachings of repentance with Jesus and John the Baptist and many others. Mark 1, 14-15. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. He didn't say live however you want. He said repent, turn to Him. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. See, there are many today who name the name of Christ but fail to turn away or to depart from iniquity. They have neglected the foundation of repentance. The biggest problem in the church today is that too many people who call themselves Christians do not have lives that back up what they declare. A.W. Tozer, great theologian of his time, writes this, It is my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and they have not been saved. Where is the evidence for these findings? Well, let's look at their fruit. According to one survey, more than half of evangelical Christians believe there is nothing morally wrong with sex outside of marriage. And also they believe that a person's human rights supersede God's commands on taking the lives of others through abortion. One article found that of the men who belong to a Christian men's organization devoted to staying morally and spiritually pure, 53% of them visited a pornographic site every single week. The main issue at hand here is not that people are sinning. We are sinners. That's not the issue. The problem is there's no moral compass to slow down the rate of sin. Nothing in them that stands up and says, this is wrong. I must repent and stop immediately. There should be a personal acknowledgement that what we are doing is wrong. And thus we should be turning to God and asking for His forgiveness and His strength to stop sinning. But the problem today is that many self-proclaimed Christians and entire denominations believe they know better than God when it comes to define what sin is. There are churches and entire denominations today that not only turn a blind eye to sin, they encourage it and they celebrate it because it makes people feel good when they sin. And they don't want to hurt their feelings with God's Word by having to tell them no. A survey done in 2009 found that among individuals who describe themselves as Christians... These are Christians. 50% believe the devil is only a symbol of evil and doesn't even exist. Listen to this. Amongst Christians, 40% believe Jesus sinned while he was on the earth. Almost 60% of Christians believe somewhat or mostly that the Holy Spirit is not a real entity, but just a symbol of good in people's minds. That's 60% of Christians. 40% do not believe they have any responsibility to share their faith with others. 25% believe the Bible is not accurate, nor culturally relevant in all it teaches, and so it must be changed, much like our Constitution. Over 40% of self-proclaimed Christians believe that the Bible, the Koran, and the Book of Mormon are, are all different expressions of the same spiritual truth that we all worship the same God. That is not true. 
54% of born-again adults do not believe there are any absolute moral truths from God. That's over half of people who claim to be Christian. And then we wonder why so many live their lives as if there is no moral accountability at all. And I'm not sure why we're so surprised because the Word of God says all of this will happen. Titus 1, 16. Speaking about the days we live in. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Without accountability, we not only see that this type of Christianity has no real power to actually change lives and alter how people live, but alarming statistics are arising to show the mass exodus of people leaving the church and leaving God altogether. 88%. 88% of children raised in the evangelical church homes, leave the church at age 18 never to return. And then we see the most frightening passage of Scripture where Jesus spoke of many who would consider themselves Christian and yet not be saved. So we can talk all I want about surveys and you can discount it, but these are the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How could this be that so many people who have been led to believe that they are Christians, and they're not? And even more importantly, is it possible that any of us would be numbered in the many who Jesus asked to depart from Him? If we fail to take this warning seriously and fail to take it to heart, to search out the truth, we will lose the only contest that matters in life, eternal life. We've talked about it for too long and it's time to leave the preaching of unbiblical and unbalanced grace, leave politically correct speech, and get back to the real truth of the gospel. Galatians 3, verses 22 through 24. The Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came... We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. See, the law, and more specifically the Ten Commandments, is described as our tutor, our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. The tragedy is that a hundred years ago, the church neglected the law in its capacity to bring the knowledge of sin and drive sinners to Christ. Many thought that the gospel was too damaging to one's self-esteem. So they had to find another reason to bring people, sinners, to respond to the gospel. 
Modern evangelism chose to attract sinners using the issue of life enhancement. In other words, the message is, come to Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace and love and joy and fulfillment and lasting happiness. Charles Spurgeon, another great father of the faith, spoke about the importance of the law. If you lower the law, you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. For it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and his conversion. You have deprived the gospel of its most powerful weapon when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster, that is to bring people to Christ. They will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves as a most necessary purpose and must never be removed from its place. Too often Christians are saying, the reason I don't evangelize, the reason why I don't share the gospel with others is because if I start talking about the Bible and absolute truths and heaven and hell, it'll hurt other people's feelings. Listen, the Word of God is completely contrary to the desires of the flesh. So it has to offend. It's the only way it can convict someone to change. It's the only way it can lead people to think and examine and evaluate the way that they're living. But listen, this is a good and necessary thing. If you knew people were going to die in a burning building, unless you showed them where the fire escape was, out of love, you would tell as many people who would listen. We don't share the gospel out of judgment because we think we're better than they are. We're not judging people. People can live however they want. But we share it out of love. We don't want anyone to perish. That's God's heart with the way people are living today, subtle reminders and gentle politically correct nudges will not get them to truly stop and examine their ways. If someone is inching closer to the edge of a cliff or if they're about to touch a hot stove, you don't whisper to them and say, please stop. Of course not. You use a voice of immediacy to call out to them. Evangelism is about using a voice of immediacy so that people might consider how they've gone against God and that they may know the consequences of their behavior if they don't change. So how do we share the gospel in a biblical way? Let me share with you a few examples that evangelist Ray Comfort gives. Two men are seated on a plane. The first man is given a parachute and he's told to put it on because it will improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first. He cannot see how wearing a parachute can, as he boards a plane could possibly improve his flight. After some time, he says, what the heck, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it on and try it. So he tests, out, he tests this experiment to see if the claims are true. As he straps the parachute to his back, he notices the weight on his shoulders. And he now realizes that having it on is difficult just sitting upright with this parachute on his back. However, he consoles himself with the flight attendant's promise that the parachute will actually improve your flight. So he decides to give it a little extra time. 
as the flight goes on, he notices that some of the other passengers are laughing at him, mocking him. Look at that idiot with a parachute on. He begins to feel humiliated. The other passengers point at him and continue to laugh until he can't stand it any longer. He sinks in his seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it on the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart because as far as he can tell, he was told an outright lie. The second man on the plane is given a parachute, and he is told something completely different. He is told to put it on because at any moment he will have to jump out of the plane at 25,000 feet. He gratefully puts the parachute on and doesn't even notice the weight upon his shoulders, nor is he concerned about his inability to sit upright. His mind is consumed about the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped without a parachute. Let's take a look at these two men. The first one was told the parachute would improve his flight. It did not. He was humiliated. He tore it off. And as far as he is concerned, it will be a long time before anyone tries to put another parachute on his back again. The second man put on the parachute solely to survive the jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him if he jumped without it, he has deep-seated joy and peace in his heart knowing that he has been saved from certain death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of some of the other passengers. His attitude towards the one who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. You see, many modern evangelists say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He will give you love and joy and peace and fulfillment and lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. The sinner responds to an emotional plea. And in an experimental fashion, puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. And what does he get? You know what he gets. Exactly what's promised in the Bible. Temptation. Tribulation. And persecution. He finds it difficult to live an upright life, and not only that, other people mock him for his faith. So what does he do? He takes off the Lord Jesus Christ. He's offended for the word's sake. He's disillusioned and somewhat embittered, and quite rightly so. He was promised a wonderful life of joy and peace and happiness. I don't know about you, but as far as I can tell, Christian life is not for sissies, right? It's difficult. But we have God to bring us through all of it. God doesn't change even when we're moving around. God, God leads us through all of it. All this man got were trials and his humiliation. His bitterness is now directed towards those who gave him the so-called good news. And now because he thinks he tried Jesus once and it didn't work, his latter end becomes worse than his first never wanting to even engage in any other conversation about this Jesus stuff. Instead of preaching that Jesus will improve the flight, we should be warning people that one day they will have to jump out of the plane. Hebrews 9:27. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. 
When we as sinners understand the horrific consequences of breaking the law of God, we will flee to the Savior in genuine repentance. It has to be more than just me coming to God because He loves me or because He's going to meet my needs. Because I can find some of that same stuff in the world. I can find someone who loves me in the world. I can find someone who agrees with me and is going to meet my needs. I can make a bunch of money to meet my own needs and find someone who believes in me. See, the only thing that will cause people to run to God and stick with Him is the truth that if we don't turn to Him, we will not escape the wrath to come. That's what the Bible teaches. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. It doesn't matter how happy a sinner is or how much he's enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Without the righteousness of Christ, he will perish on the day of wrath. If we want to learn how to spread the gospel in a purely biblical way, we need to look at what Jesus did. When Jesus confronted sinners, he made the issue one of righteousness rather than happiness. Matthew 6.33 But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We must seek God and his righteousness. Instead of preaching the good news that sinners can be made righteousness in Christ and escape the wrath to come, we have settled for a gospel that implies that God's primary purpose in saving us is to unfold a wonderful plan in our lives, to solve all our problems, to make us happy, to cause us to become wealthy through tithing, to rescue us from the hassles of life. I don't know about you, but I've still got a lot of problems that have not been solved yet. I still have a lot of things that God's still working in me to continue to trust through. This is the message that's going on in many churches today. The truth is that not only does the wonderful plan message do little more than produce false converts, it also is not biblical to teach that way. Jesus did not tell Paul about the wonderful plan he had for his life. Newsflash. On the contrary, Acts 9.16. For I will show him, speaking of Saul or Paul, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Do you know how Paul suffered? Let me tell you. Paul was stoned once. He was shipwrecked three times. I don't know about you, but I got shipwrecked once. I wouldn't go near that boat. He was shipwrecked three times. Why? Because he was following God's call to go somewhere. Even if it didn't make sense to him, he was following his Lord's voice. He was beaten three times. He was whipped five times. He was thrown in prison, and eventually he was beheaded for following Jesus. Stephen, one of the first deacons, was cruelly stoned to death for his faith. James told us to count all joy when you fall into various trials. He was murdered with a sword. Down through the ages, Christians have been hated and persecuted and thrown to the lions beheaded, sawn in half, and burned at the stake. All of this is consistent with Scripture. Acts 14.22 Strengthening the souls of the disciples, they exhorted them to continue in the faith, saying, We must... 
through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You see, we get sympathetic to this life enhancement gospel here in America, but how do you bring people to Christ who live in persecuted areas? I've been communicating with our missionary in India, and he's got to share the gospel knowing that they hate Christians there, knowing that they're going to be persecuted, and thousands of people are coming to Christ. There's no life enhancement in that gospel. They're just understanding that they seek in the righteousness of God so they can live eternally with Him forever. You see, it's not about our happiness, but rather our righteousness that can only be obtained through acknowledging our sins, repenting, and then turning to Christ. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God promises us if we hunger for Him, uh, what He has to offer, the truth in His book, then He will fill us. It is the law, particularly the Ten Commandments, that make us thirst after righteousness that we in the flesh have no desire for. Matthew five seventeen and 18. Do not think, Jesus saying, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will not by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Listen, Jesus did not come to get rid of law and order. Like some t- churches teach today, they say the law is of no, circum- of no consideration anymore. Jesus came to magnify the law that we might see and acknowledge our true and sinful state and understand our desperate need for a Savior. Remember, it was Jesus who said this, Matthew 5:48. He said, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus made this statement to show the function of the law. In other words, we must line ourselves up to the perfect law of God. We must see how far we've fallen short of the law. We're not to compare ourselves to a religious leader. Don't compare yourself to me. I mess up all the time. We're not to compare ourselves to the person next to you and just say, I'm better than the, at least I'm better than the person next to you. Every one of us sins. We all do. We all fall short. The Bible tells us to compare ourselves to the perfect law of God. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. It's only when we've come under the law and have been convicted of it and have repented, then we can understand the blessing of grace. And then we can understand the greatness of forgiveness. Because we know we need God. It has nothing to do with shame. But it has everything to do with coming to Jesus because He is the only one who can forgive us and make us whole. Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. That's what the gospel was meant to do, to convert the soul. Matthew Henry, another great founder of the father of the faith, says, Of this excellent use is the law. What's the law do? It converts the soul. It opens the eyes. It prepares the way of the Lord in the desert. It rends the rocks. It levels the mountains. It makes the people prepared for the Lord. Romans 3.20 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, which means no matter how good you are or how good you think you are, you cannot earn favor with God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Listen, the the law has a job. It gives us the knowledge of sin. It's only by the law that we are made aware of our faults. Look at the world today with laws are being destroyed and people are not wanting to follow a law. Look what's happening in our world when they don't have the law to show the difference between right and wrong. That originated with God by, by God saying, don't neglect the law. It shows us how we failed, how we've missed the mark that God has set for us. The truth is that compared to the law, every one of us has failed. And the Bible says that because we have sinned, the wages of our sin is death. The fathers of our faith have continually tried to drum in this message into our heads. John MacArthur said, God's grace cannot be faithfully preached to unbelievers until the law is preached and man's corrupt nature is exposed. It is impossible for a person to fully realize his need for God's grace until he sees how terribly he has failed the standards of God's law. Martin Luther, the first duty, the first duty of the gospel preacher is not to build the church. The first duty of the gospel preacher is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin because Jesus is our answer. So how is this done? How do I share the gospel in a biblical way? using the Ten Commandments, like this. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever gotten mad at someone and lusted for someone in your heart? Then by your own admission, you're a liar, thief, murderer, and adulterer. That's what the Bible says about those actions. We studied it in our Bible study this morning. If God judges you based on these standards of his law, will you be innocent or guilty? So will you go to heaven or hell? You might say heaven because you think God is good. But what makes God good is that he makes sure justice is done. If a judge let a murderer go free, he would cease to be a good judge, wouldn't he? So it is because of God's goodness that he has to punish sin to make sure that justice is done. And because God is a just God, where would you end up based on his standards? It obviously wouldn't be heaven, which is a place for all righteousness. But now I ask you, are you ready to hear some good news? Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love towards us, not shame. He demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Simply put, we broke the law and Jesus paid our fine. That means that God can legally dismiss our case. He's not violating his law. He's legally dismissing our case. If we understand the error of our ways, if we repent and turn to God, then he forgives us. 
The Bible says He wipes our slate clean. As far as the east is from the west, He removes our sin from us. He remembers our sin no more. As we turn to Him, we are restored by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Through the blood of Jesus, we can now be reunited with God. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, because of this gift, we are saved from eternal damnation. But now we're called to live a life worthy of repentance. We ask the Holy Spirit to come inside of us and live inside of us to continually convict us of sin and keep bringing us back to God so that we can faithfully live a godly life. We cannot do this on our own because we will all fall from time to time. I fall all the time. But my God continues to pick me back up because of His amazing grace. Philippians 1.6 We can be confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have a long way to go. But God is the one who is faithful to complete us. We don't have to fix ourselves. We just have to keep coming back to Him and listening to His voice. And He will be faithful to complete each and every one of us if we commit to following Him. Therefore, to keep our faith in Jesus, we must be committed to pray. Committed to asking the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts daily. That nothing would interfere with our relationship with God. We must be committed to read the Bible. To study the Bible. To grow in the faith. And to find a community of like-minded believers where we encourage one another where we stand on the promises of God and help others find this everlasting peace. This is the foundation to which God is calling all of us to return. It was always there. We just strayed from it. By the gift of God's grace, He's calling us to come back home. These are our roots. And it is through our roots that we take in the nourishment from God to sustain us and strengthen us and cause us to keep growing in Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask You right now to quicken these truths to our heart. Let Your Word convict us where we have sinned, where we have fallen short. We turn to You right now. God, we desire to be healed. We desire to be forgiven. We desire to come into Your presence. May you bless us through the words of the song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.